menopause I've kind of written a little bit like literally having hot flushes mid-set exactly I'd read that it was awful I was literally like uncontrollable sweating and I I had to put a long record on record Mm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I ran to the loo this is an electric house and um I was panicking, like sweating and dabbing myself with toilet paper to get in. And, and then I yeah, looked in the mirror yeah. and had all the little bits of paper all stuck on no! it. And then it just made it even worse. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. And I was just like, oh That's my God, it's like Bridget Jones yeah, menopause yeah. goes. Bridget Jones, my friends used to call me. Well, lovely. Hello there. Welcome back to Where Love Lives with me, Lulu LeVay. Can you believe this is now the fourth episode of the show? Absolutely brilliant. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I hope you have too. So far, we've had musical guests Jazzy B, Colleen Cosmo Murphy, and most recently, Smoking Joe. But I really want to make sure the guests on this podcast are as creatively varied as possible. So for this episode, I'm delighted to have as my guest, author and journalist Sophie Hayward, who popped into the podcast studios at Soho Radio for a quick chinwag about the things she loves outside of the traditional romance narrative. I wanted to have Sophie on as my guest as I was really interested in her book, The Hungover Games, which is out now on paperback and highly recommended, which is basically a memoir about how she was jolted into adulthood by accidentally falling pregnant in LA after a one night stand. Her daughter Echo is now almost 10. There was one particular theme in the book which really resonates with my own area of research on motherhood and family. Don't worry, I won't bore you. If you're interested, just punch my name into Amazon and it will pop up, which is about how love for a child is more powerful and impactful than romance, and how women are made to feel non-normative if they don't follow the script of heteronormativity. As Sophie openly shares in her book, I began to feel what it is to sit outside the narrative, trying to fit yourself into a fairy tale with some of the pages missing. I personally empathise with that feeling of having pages missing. Some of you out there might too. There is so much negative representation of single motherhood, so I wanted to celebrate Sophie and her book for this podcast and also make those women listening to this show and all people who feel like they sit outside the dominant narrative feel heard and seen. I see you. Where Love Lives is basically a middle finger up to societal expectations of femininity and masculinity and all normative notions of how we are expected to find happiness and joy in our lives. So join me and Sophie, middle fingers firmly up, to chat about her loves which include the constantly sunny LA and the strong bonds she has with her teddy bears. No judgment here. If you like this podcast, please do review, subscribe, like and share with your friends. It would mean a lot to me. Enjoy the show. Hello, Sophie. Hello, Lulu. I'm so delighted to have you as my special guest today. For everybody listening, this is uh, author, writer, journalist Sophie Hayward, who's joined us today. So how are you doing? How have you been? I'm really good. I've got a bit feral because my daughter's away without me and I've sort of woke up this morning and realised that the house looks like I've been sort of burgled and had loads of student takeaways. Quite... You haven't been having world parties in that, have No, you? it looks like I have. Sadly, I've just got the mess without the actual party. So how long is she away for? Uh, a few days. 
Yeah. Do you family. miss her or is it nice to have a bit uh, of a break? It's nice to have a break. Yeah, I don't sort of phone her every day and stuff like that. We just like, we're apart and then we're back together and it's really nice. Yeah. So it must be quite sweet when you, do you have like a running slowly, in like slow motion towards each, <laughs> towards other. each other? Yeah, she always comes in too fast and whacks me and I'm like, ow! And then there's always this scene where I'm trying to be loving, but I'm like, can you not bash me in the head? So it's really nice that, you know, you, we, we started by talking about your daughter, Echo. Yeah. Uh, who's nearly 10, you were yes. saying earlier. She's very central to a lot of your work and, and your book. Why choose that name? Because it's such an unusual name. Is it Echo Park? Yes, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and I had, um, I'd moved to West Hollywood, but I had spent a year in Echo Park. So, uh, yeah, and I had friends in a band called Io Echo. There were lots of reasons to call her Echo. Does it is it a straight, like difficult name for kids at school? I mean, do they? I think people get say it three times. I think people say oh echo echo echo, but after that, it's fine. Yeah, but mu- people who love music always love that name. Always. Because the first reference I thought of was Echo Park. Yeah. No, that's where I was when I chose the name. So we got quite a lot to cover. So obviously this uh, podcast is about, well, it's called Where Love Lives. So it's looking at the things that people love outside of the romantic relationship. And I thought it was really great to have you on as a guest because a lot of your work is based around being a single mother and looking at these you know, ideas of what it is to be like outside of romantic relationship, building a life for yourself. Absolutely. So maybe a good way to sort of start this is just tell us about your book. Yeah, so I wrote my book, The Hungover Games, which is a memoir. It's non-fiction about having moved to Los Angeles, sort of at the age where friends of mine back in London were starting to kind of settle down and have children and have weddings. So I was about 33 at this point. And I think... That had just never happened for me. I think I did want it deep down. It wasn't that I was totally running from that sort of heteronormative life. But I couldn't I couldn't do it at the same time. I think I thought I wanted it. I didn't know how to sort of have a relationship that lasted. I was sort of sleeping around. I was drinking quite a lot. I was having a lot of fun. I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds a bit too familiar. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's hardly a... No bit of this is a sob story. It's all been amazing. But I think there was a part of me that was a bit Peter Pan-like and thought, I need to stop time. I can't go to any more weddings and feel weird at them. And that thing where they throw the bouquet and you're like, oh, oh God, you weren't, oh. you weren't the type to go running towards it. No, I was a type to pretend I had no interest, but deep down I did have an interest. <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, I'm too cool for this bouquet. Fuck her, she's got it. <laughs> <laughs> So I went to LA, which is an interesting choice. I loved it because I'd been out there to interview celebrities in my job as a journalist. Anyway, I was already writing about sort of Hollywood and entertainment, more on the music side then, but there's a lot of music in LA as well. It's not just the film industry. So I knew LA. I'd made a group of friends there who were really welcoming every time I went there and I hung out with them. So I sort of had a life waiting for me there. But I also think it's a brilliant town where you can have a great great fun as a journalist but it is this town of suspended time you know there's everything from the fact that i mean i wasn't personally interested in plastic surgery or botox or all that stuff but it is a place where people are refusing to age they are doing those treatments and it is a place where the winter never comes it's always summer christmas day you're still in your t-shirt the seasons don't change yeah and there's something about that i look at it now and i think was part of my psyche trying to stop the progression of time and keep up my quite teenage or quite studenty lifestyle in perpetuity and i think la let me do that until i had this strange situation where only in la i went on this sort of 
power yoga retreat. Of course I did. <laughs> Taken by a friend who had a free place because she was like one so of So hard, power yoga. <laughs> I know. And it was, it was, well, it was like, I call it power yoga. It was that ballet bar stuff where you're like crunching up and down at the bar. I mean, ballet training is hardcore. And I was not particularly fit at all. So I did my back in on this retreat, got back to LA, went to Cedar sinai Hospital, which is the really posh sort of, Beverly Hills Hospital, which just happened to be my local from where I was renting a flat. And they couldn't work out what was wrong with me. They could see I was in agony, but the, the pain in my back was sort of refracted around the front. It was all very misleading symptoms. So whilst they were there, they sort of checked out my ovaries and all this stuff. And at the end, they said, OK, we can see what's wrong with your back. You have damaged your back, but that's fine. It's going to be better in a week. But did you know, by the way, we've just done this other scan on you? And did you know you're infertile? And I was like, I'm, I'm hearing agonising. they give that to you as direct as that? Yeah. Well, they said, don't worry, you have the best kind of infertility. And I was like, sorry, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? And they said, you can still carry a child. And I was like, so I'm not, you know, I was. it was all this confusing news happening at once. I was like, well, if you can carry a child, you're not infertile, are you? You know, I didn't know what was going on. And they said, oh, you've got polycystic ovaries. And I was like, they're not very bad. You know, Posh Spice had polycystic ovaries because my my reference to everything was celebrities. <laughs> that was my job. And they were like, yeah, yours are worse. Um, you'll have to have fertility treatment. So I went home from the hospital in agony with my back pain and just had this life crisis of going, oh, my God, I've missed it. I'm in my 30s. I just thought I could be an idiot forever and That's run around. A sho- That's shocking news to somebody. Yeah, though, isn't when it? you've also got basically what's like a slip disc in your back and then you're so low and you can't have kids. And I sort of went to my apartment and cried alone for a week and just had this moment of, I've missed it. You know, that door has finally shut. You can't run around forever. I haven't worked out how to have a relationship yet, but I did want kids. I did want a family. I did want that very much. And then I finally spoke to a friend of mine who was this very kind of loose, laid back sort of ex-junkie lawyer. And he was like, hey, what's the problem? All they've said to you is that you can't get pregnant by accident. You just have to, you know, have fertility treatment like everyone else in L.A. You was know, this and- the same guy who said, now go out and fuck like it's the 70s? Yeah, I put that <laughs> conversation in my book. Brilliant. He said, so go out and fuck like it's the 1970s. And of course, that was probably the single worst piece of advice. You know, no mention of HIV or anything anything like well, that. Because yeah. you know, also 70s, what, pre-fatal diseases. <gasps> I was like, hey, that's a good idea. So the next day I had unprotected sex with someone who I knew and had had a sort of long time fling with, but very on and off fling. And that was it. I was pregnant the next day. The hospital was wrong. I was very, very fertile. One one go and that was I mean, it. that's kind of like, you know, one, in one go. That's pretty amazing. I feel bad because I've got friends who've tried and tried for yeah. years and, and been through all those treatments and, you know, the heartache of, of actual fertility struggles. So it's like it's so double shock. So it's like one minute you're first, yeah. the next thing you're pregnant. All I know. Bit, within a few days. I know. I was still recovering from the sort of sad news about my infertility when I found out that I was expecting it. <laughs> That's pretty I random. Mean, yeah. And of course, then I'm living in a one bedroom flat, very supported by my lovely friends in LA. But, you know, not at that point supported by the guy I was pregnant by. This was, you know, the worst news he could imagine. And, and he didn't even live in LA and he, he was gone. He was out the door. And I was on my own and I had to come back to London and sort of rebuild my life. Of course, you know, I could have got rid of it, of course, is the abortion question. Having just spent a week sort of sobbing for the child I'd never had, it then seemed a bit mad. I felt quite religious at that point. I did think, well, you know, here's the blessing I asked for. Um, I'm going to take this. 
Yeah. You know, this might be the only pregnancy I ever have. I'm going to have this baby. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Well, congratulations. <laughs> and I wrote a book <laughs> about that. And, and half half of the book is that sort of first half LA. Yeah. But the second half, we're back in London. And I'm still sort of trying to be a sort of clubbing, partying girl about town. But whilst, you know, literally whilst breastfeeding. And it's the sort of reality clash that that takes me to. So this is the book. So that's the book is all about this kind of journey through yeah. that period. Yeah. So when you came back to it's East London, you live, isn't mm, it? Mm. I mean, how did you? Yeah. How, what was it like, kind of getting back into your old life a bit, but with a baby? I must have been really difficult. Yeah, I was six months pregnant when I got back, so I was seeing people I hadn't seen for a few years, and I had this big bump. And not everybody knows everything until you know. I mean, there was some gossip, I'm sure, but like. People are like, you know, I remember one person saying to me, oh, my God, Sophie, I didn't know you were having a baby. I didn't even know you had a boyfriend. There's and, this you know, automatic assumption. Yeah, that you yeah. And, you, and I was a bit like, oh, here we go. And then you feel a bit embarrassed going like, no, I just, you know, it was this thing. And no, he doesn't. And, you know, I'd, I'd sort of avoid. I didn't. I, I found it easier, actually, to be a single mum with, with the actual product in front of me, the actual child than to be a single pregnant person. I think there's something I found very humiliating about being single and pregnant. Perhaps if I'd chosen to do it, perhaps if I'd gone down the donor route, perhaps if I'd planned it, I'd have had a bolder attitude. I think there was a little part of me that for all my sort of feminism and independence felt like this sort of trope of the abandoned fallen woman. I I think all those old narratives, you think you're above them or you think you've grown up in quite a modern way, but... They've sort of seeped through your skin, I think. I am older than you by a few yeah. years, but I still think that tail end of the 70s and kind of that kind of the societal narrative around yeah. family is yeah. fixed with us. Yeah. It's really, you just can't just shake it off like that. Really because sticks. I, you know, I get it because it's kind of like, yeah. I'm a feminist and I, and I believe in, you know, in a whole really diverse way of living, but sometimes it catches me out as well. It, it does, it catches you and you don't know it's there. And what's even funny, I remember even a few years into being a mum when I'd got much more used to it all um a friend said to me oh I saw such and such the other day and I was like oh how's she doing and she said oh yeah she's just back from visiting her sister in LA and her sister's having a bit of a funny time she moved to LA and then she got pregnant by this guy and he's walked out so now she's having the baby on her own <laughs> Lulu I said that's you well no no I said god what a mess oh. <laughs> and then I heard myself <laughs> and was like Oh my god, that's literally me, and I'm still judging someone else. Wow, that's how interesting. interesting! You felt like that then, but looking back at your earlier self, do you? How do you feel about her now? When you look back, do you still feel like that? That she was a mess. Yeah. Or, I think she or was have a, a bit, bit of a mess. I think, I think we're in an interesting time where that sort of narrative of like being a single woman and going out and getting drunk and bringing someone home who you're not very connected to. I think. It may be, you know, it took feminism a while to get to that place of freedom. And I don't ever want anyone to lose that freedom. But I also question whether in my soul I was, you know, in a, in a, I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't like deeply miserable. I wasn't sort of, you know, the comedian sort of masking their depression. It wasn't quite that. But I think you can mistake sex for intimacy. And I think I probably found it easier to have a sort of brash out of my mind quick thrilling experience with a semi-stranger than to sort of 
you know, hold someone's hand and walk to the shop and get a pint of milk with them. That's you harder. Know, much harder. That's much harder. Much harder. And it's not brave to be the way that I was. I think I thought I was quite brave and I think actually there's a lot of cowardice. So do you think like what you, you felt sort of humiliation around the conception story, if you like? that it, you, Yeah. And what's kind of... funny is because the guy, the dad was a musician, he would have had a few flings with over the years and he wasn't famous, famous, but he had a sort of cult following and I'm a really chatty person who usually tells everyone everything. But I had kept very quiet about my sort of on-off thing with him. Just a couple of my best friends knew. And I think because I'd successfully kept my mouth shut, when it came out that I was pregnant by him, absolutely everybody assumed it was a one-night stand. And I was conflicted about that because I thought, you know, he and I have actually had this connection for about seven years, which is in some ways, my longest ever relationship, you know, because I hadn't had that. So, I mean, months would go by without us even speaking. We didn't live in the same country and it really wasn't that kind of relationship at all. It was very, very intermittent. But on the one hand, when someone was like, oh, yeah, I heard you, you know, you had a baby and it was a one night stand, I'd sort of think, I don't want to jump in and say it was not a one night stand because what you if it like was, you know, so it's a bit like, like someone else, someone else who's had a baby that way. I'm not criticising her. But there was a little part of me that wanted to go, seven years is not a one, you know. But, but, but you had to justify it in some way. Yeah, but then I'd question myself and think, well, am I trying to sort of push the shame narrative onto someone else? Like someone who did it that way would be bad. I'm, I'm okay. You know, mm. where am I locating that shame? It's quite interesting because when you talk you call the your child's father the musician well lawyers had to well, I'm living, I'm living. follow me down deep down you don't really talk about who it is. I'm not going to ask you. I mean, you know. No, he's not. Honestly, he's not that famous. He's really not. No, but it doesn't. But I think people kind of, from what I've I've looked at some of the reviews or comments around your your book, it's like, who is the music? Like people kind of want to know. Of course, and, that's and kind I of, if, if I think I that's would... annoying. Like it's like, I think that would annoy me if I was you. But I don't know. Does it bother you that people just? It seems important to find no, out. No, it bothers it me slightly that that. I've maybe made it sad. I mean, I didn't call him a rock star or anything like that. He's not. He's much more sort of alternative than a rock star. But um, I think something, I think like the Amazon listing for the book, there was something, some bit of PR that was done for the book that wasn't done by me that called him like an LA rock star. And I think on the one hand, on a basic marketing level, I can see how that makes the book seem exciting. And And everyone who's read the book has said amazingly nice things about it. Nobody sort of felt they were ripped off by the premise. But at the same time, like, LA Rockstar is really, really, really not not the right... That's kind of... I suppose it's kind of building this the wrong of, description. Maybe it's looking like yeah. building a fantasy. It makes me worry of... that I've written some kind of kiss and tell, which I haven't at all, but... um. Well, has he read the book? Yeah, he has read it. He oh, well, how does he feel about to. it? Well, not keen, Lulu, not keen. No, so... <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't write write a review for the, the back jacket then? <laughs> No. But did you, I mean, you didn't have to edit or edit bits out because... To to give him immense credit, he could have said, you know, I want X, Y and Z done. And, you know, he made it clear that this, you know, wasn't the book that he would have chosen to have there in the world. But he didn't ask for a single change. No. That's good. Give him immense credit. So nothing, nothing was changed. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's really good. That's impressive. And as you said, he, he gave you... The gift of your beautiful daughter. 
He did, and she's bloody great. And I saw a really funny video, not that I've been stalking you or anything, let me just say, <laughs> but I think I saw something in your Instagram about uh, you found a video of your daughter recording something during lockdown, and she had this crazy hairdo. Oh, God, she did. <laughs> she like, had, like, massive sort of knot. Yeah, like, one side of her hair was normal. She looked like one... she joined, like, a travelling band or something. Oh, or God, grunge yeah, band she or looked like she was a sort of white crusty going for the dreads thing, but just, yeah. just on one side. Uh, it was pretty bad. I just, I think I just got through the first lockdown the way I got through it and I just didn't. All the things we used to do in the morning to go to school, like brush your teeth, brush your hair, wash, <laughs> I don't think, prepare meals. I think I lost it a bit, Lulu. We went pretty feral, like I have done this week. Yeah, we're sort of savages, really. Sounds good. Good. <laughs> um, so let's, we could talk, I want to talk a bit more about your daughter and the life as a single mother as we kind of go into your your loves that you've chosen. Yes. So let's start with the first one. We've covered it a little bit, but you've chosen LA. Yeah. And I'm very happy about this because I love LA too. So why have you chosen LA for your first love? I just love Los Angeles and it's funny, all the things that people who are not familiar with the city but everyone's heard of LA we've all sort of seen the Hollywood side of things on telly and um, if you don't know LA you haven't been there you might think oh it's that place where everyone has to have a car it's just like car city well it is but I still haven't passed my driving test so I lived there for years without being able to drive and people go oh it's all about plastic surgery and boob jobs and the body beautiful and there is that stuff. That's not untrue. But again, that's not me. You know, I've come in here this morning with really hairy legs, haven't shaved, you know, got eyeliner probably on one eye. The beauty yesterday. of podcasting. The beauty of podcasting, how shit I look. Um, you know, I'm not some huge body beautiful person at all. I'm quite scruffy. And um, all those LA things, you know, oh, it's that kind of bullshit smiley. Hi, how are you, culture? And again, it is, but you can find the truth in it. And it's like, it's that's all a bit like thinking, oh, you live in London. Have you seen the Queen recently? You know, Buckingham Palace does not really figure in most people's lives. Um, the friends I had in LA were, you know, my closest friends there. One's a teacher in a very sort of underprivileged high school. He's now the principal. One's a sort of barefoot poet. One's a lawyer. One was, you know, an agent in in Hollywood. It's very much in the industry, as they call it there. They just call it the industry. Like, oh, do you work in the industry? Well, and ev- no and everyone industry. knows, which, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, a friend worked in a bookshop and was always broke. I mean, there were a lot of sort of singer-songwriters I knew because I started going there to write about music years before. So people were tangentially connected to Hollywood. And, and there was a sort of celebrity element to my socialising as well, but... But a lot of my friends, you know, were skin and doing interesting things. So how did you make friends there then? I got lucky with a singer-songwriter. I was sent there years ago to interview two singer-songwriters, Eleni Mandel and, um, well, Lavender Diamond was the other band, but Becky Stark was the singer from that. And they were two brilliant women and they sort of welcomed me into their lives and I just sort of swallowed up all their friends and was just locked in they were lovely so no because I mean because I love LA and people say to me like it's not the sort of place that they want to go they can't imagine that they'd like it there but you, I, you, you need the friends you can't just yeah. walk down the walk of fame and go like oh there's the guy who dresses up as Michael Jackson and I'll pay a dollar and pose for a photo with this guy who dresses up as Marilyn Monroe in drag like that's fun for an afternoon but that wasn't my life at all my life was the people there who were always having parties in their house well, a lot of it was house parties always going around and doing stuff together it was really this was like just pre-uber and sort of just pre-instagram and it was just this lovely period around sort of 20 
2009, 10, 11 that I was there were very much people had the internet and they had cell phones, but it wasn't that total sort of iPhone, Instagram but, aren't, aren't you, I mean, I'm so glad that Uber appeared in LA. I mean, Lyft that would have made my life a lot easier. I oh used to God. walk across town. I used to get these Russian minicabs with these really fantastically grumpy Russian drivers that were really unreliable, but amazing when they came. Or friends used to give me lifts everywhere and I got the buses. There, There is public transport in LA. There's even an underground that nobody knows about. Can you remember like the moment when you thought, my God, I love it here? Was there like, was there, like a moment that you experienced? I do remember once waking up in the morning and I had something to be genuinely grumpy about. I think I'd had an email from work in London with like a mega problem, disappointment, total sort of cock up. And someone I was involved with, I think, had really, really pissed me off. And it, and in London, had I had a really sort of double whammy bad day like that, I'd probably be in that bad mood for, what, three weeks? You know, because you'd get up in the morning, you'd get on the tube and it'd be smelly and raining and you'd be pushing through crowds and you wouldn't feel any better for a while. But I think I got up and by about 11am, I was sat looking out of my kitchen window in my flat and there was this sort of enormous purpley pink bougainvillea plant that would just bloom out of my window I remember just staring at it going oh my god that is gorgeous and like looking down at the parked cars and it sort of shed its blossom onto all these even the parked cars looked so pretty I was going to say happy so happy (laughs) with their sort of pink rooftop I remember just thinking like oh I'm not in a bad mood anymore it's been about five minutes amazing what sunshine and (laughs) yeah it lifts you it's like being on sort of Prozac it's really really lifting do you think if you hadn't got pregnant, you would still be living there now? Really good question. I think I would, yeah. What would I that do. life would have looked like? Do you think it's like it's that sliding doors thing, isn't it? Like... Yeah. Well, I'd be thinner because <laughs> <laughs> I was hiking a lot when I was there. Now I just sit in the house. Um, I wonder, would I have kept that sort of British cynicism, sarcasm that I am very, very partial to? Or would I have gone a bit more like, oh, that's so wonderful. Because when I take my daughter back there now to see my friends and pre-lockdown, we were going at least once a year because I can usually sort of wangle a work trip and sometimes pay extra and take her with me. What I notice is if my daughter does, a, you know, some of her drawings are really good. She loves drawing, but sometimes it's just a quick scribble and it's just, it, you know, you don't want to say, oh, darling, that's so wonderful. But she shows anything she does to an American and they go, oh, my God, that's amazing. And I'm there going, well, actually, no, that, that isn't amazing. The toxic that's, positivity. It is, it's toxic I heard, positivity. I heard about that recently, actually, toxic yeah. positivity. Yeah. Well, also, how is a child meant to learn to sort of strive harder and feel and Take a bit of criticism. Highs well. and lows and take a bit of criticism if you tell, oh, my God, that's so wonderful. Like, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's rubbish. <laughs> and I've noticed with her, we went round, we went to Silver Lake once, which is this sort of trendy... East LA area, it's a bit like the sort of, I don't know, the Hackney. Shoreditch, well, yeah, a bit of Shoreditch kind of Hackney, yeah. And um, there was an open day a while ago at the local elementary school and I was thinking, well, had we stayed, I might have, you know, tried to send her to this very popular sort of groovy, effectively a state primary school. And we went round there, sort of festival day, and we got chatting to this teacher who I think would have been her teacher. And this teacher was like, oh, you live in England, do you go to school? My daughter was like, yeah, I go to school. And she and the woman goes, is your teacher pretty? What? That's so random. And you could see my daughter thinking, uh, sort of, you know, racking her brains thinking, um, never cross. Yes, I guess. Yeah. You know, like it had never crossed my daughter's mind. And there's this thing, there's this way people in L.A. talk to kids, especially little girls. Everything's toxic positivity and everything's about beauty. 
oh, your dress is so pretty. Oh, you're so pretty. I kind of don't want my kid to hear that all day long. Oh, is she pretty? Who gives a shit if your teacher's So do you think you wouldn't... Pretty. So I don't know if I would have wanted to have, you know, kids there. So you wouldn't... The the thought of bringing her up there wasn't even a possibility. Oh, I weigh it up all the time. But then we'd have to go through the school shooting thing. I'm not saying she would go through a school shooting, but you have to go through the protocol. You know, you have to practice. All the kids have to practice, like, going into the cupboard with their hands on their head. And every child of her age would have done, like, years of training about the shooters. Um, I don't know. It's a bit traumatic, isn't it? I don't know about that. How much of the backstory does she know? I mean, I have a question here. I want to know how she felt. version. <laughs> right, because I wondered how she felt actually about being so central to your work and your book. Like, Well, she doesn't quite understand what it is. She does know that she's central to it, but um, she was about five when I was writing it, maybe a bit older. Do you wonder, I wonder what she, how she might feel when she... Well, it's a older. ticking time bomb. <laughs> oh, that's good. I've given her a signed copy that says, don't read it till you're 15. So uh, You, you uh, put money aside for therapy. Yeah, yeah, the money <laughs> from the book. I've planned, I've planned the spiel. I'm going to be like, this book, do you remember all those holidays? Do you remember that nicer house that we moved to? Do you remember, you know, yeah. let's pay for all. <laughs> My sort of passive-aggressive, codependent, you know, aggro chat. I've planned it all. <laughs> I think it is her fate to be the daughter of a writer. I think that that... And I'm copying this from Rachel Cusk, who said that about her daughters. She said, you know, for better or for worse, it is their fate. They are the children of a writer. I don't know that that's an excuse, but it but it resonates. I think also it's about communicating, isn't it? So yeah. it sounds, I'm, you know, I'm sure as she grows older, you'll talk to her about it and be open. It's very open. It's literally, you're an open book. <laughs> literally. And also literally. my daughter has had a lot of me. You know, I'm... I mean, massive shout out to the parents who can't do this, but I am the person who takes her to school, gets her ready for school. I am the person who picks her up again at 3.30. Most jobs don't allow you to do that. You have to find some kind of wraparound childcare. And because I'm a writer and I can just sit at the kitchen table on my laptop, which I do, I am very available to her. And had I taken a different career, she'd have had an awful lot less of me. What I've been thinking about is this idea of love outside of romantic relationships relationships which is what this yes. podcast is yes. about but what is really nice is about you have a relationship with your daughter which is a form of love I know you haven't picked this as one of your topics but you wrote something saying you know suddenly you found out you're, you're someone's mother is this love question mark is this your your big love story it is and I suppose it's funny I suppose if you met someone you know who you're attracted to and you're maybe starting dating them or whatever you call it and you know, I suppose you have that sort of moment where you're thinking to yourself, like, is this it? Is is this the big one? Is this love? And um, I had that with my own child. And it doesn't, you sort of think this thunderbolt's going to come in the hospital. You know, you've got to give birth and they're going to pass this baby to your loving arms and you're going to get this instant hit of love. And I didn't not love her. I didn't have a sort of rejection experience of her. I was just, I was quite drugged. In the I thought you were going to say drunk. No, no, they gave me. No, I was very... No, I didn't drink in pregnancy. I, was <laughs> I know. I was just very like... good, actually. I was very good for ages, even afterwards. But, you know, you're past this baby. I'd had all sorts of medical interventions to give birth because it had gone wrong. And, you know, firstly, a zonk... I mean, I was sort of high. You know, you're past this baby and they... You had a cesarean, just, didn't you? I had a cesarean, yeah, and they'd pumped me full of drugs and you're just like, what is this? I did feel an incredible rush towards it, but I remember when she was about eight months old, I sort of exhaled for the first time in about a year, like really just suddenly felt relaxed one day, just sat in a chair and 
watched her move around the room and she was trying to get onto the chair. She was trying to crawl, I think. I remember just suddenly having this like thunderbolt to the heart, like a sort of Richard Curtis film moment. And suddenly thinking like, oh my God, it's you. Oh, that's really sweet. And you know what? When I've been re- reading about how in love you are with your daughter, it, it kind of made me, because I don't have kids. We talked yeah. a little bit about this earlier. And it kind of like, and I've been okay with that. Yeah. But it started to make me think, like, have I missed out, like, by not having a kid or experiencing being a mother? Because the way you talk about being a mother is so poetic and beautiful. I mean, do people sometimes say that to you? Well, thank you. And actually, it's funny. One of the reasons I knew I was going to have that baby, definitely, was because I happened to have had these two conversations with friends in their 50s who hadn't had kids two women just just before I got pregnant I happened to have seen two very unconnected friends both in their 50s and they both said to me you know Sophie if at any time you think you do want to have kids you just need to do it because I sort of didn't and now I wonder they were just wondering they were both happy with their lives they're both married actually but they were both like you know I think Sophie you actually do want that and you probably need to get on it I think you're sort of a bit in denial and that had been interesting to speak to two women in their 50s who were like I'm fine but I could also have done it differently. And I thought, oh, there was just something interesting in those conversations. I mean, you just can't say that one life of way of life is better than another, can you? And you can't. And some people have children and really struggle. So it's just hard to know. But it's your experience, basically. Yeah. But I did partly want to write this book because I thought, Do you know what? Had I not spoken to those two women, I think I might have thought that I had these sort of eternal choices And they sort of said to me, like, you know, if you really want something, you do actually have to bite the bullet. And I think the point I'm trying to make is that I hadn't read much about how wonderful having a child is. That might sound silly. You might think the whole portrait of motherhood is sort of lovely, smiley, you know, bunnies in the park kind of thing. But it isn't really. In British culture, what we hear a lot of is like, oh, God, the kids. I'm so tired. And that's true. And that's valid. But I think because we are a bit of a sort of sarcastic, bit of a stiff upper lip nation and we sort of poo-poo sincerity a bit. I think you hear a lot of, oh, God, the bloody kids drive me mad. I don't think you hear much of the romance and the passion for one's own children, unless there's some sort of hospital vigil on the news where someone sat by their child's bedside, you know, saying, oh, my God, I'd give my life for them. You don't hear the in-between and I actually did want to write this book so people knew that there is this great love affair to be had. I wonder if it would have been different if there had been the, the father or a partner would be more in the picture. Yeah. That would and have been I, diluted in some way. Yes, and I wonder would I have been putting some of my passion into them, into the partner, or would it be that, you know, is it unhealthy? Am I putting my, my the part of my sort of soul that's reserved for romantic love, am I putting that into a child? Is that creating a sort of codependent yeah. and that, what do you mommy think about dear that? I think about that loads I think are we going to turn into like you know little Edie and Grey Gardens <laughs> kind of well, that freaks of me out but um but it's funny but more recently I have met someone I have got a boyfriend now um and well that's exciting yeah I didn't want to ask no it's fine I mean it's we've been together for about a year but um it's a lockdown romance. It is a bit of a lockdown romance, but um, but a very solid one. But I knew him. He he was a friend anyway, so it was nice. It wasn't like scrolling through an app. It was sort of someone I already kind of trusted. So how's that changed the dynamic then? Yeah, I still 
I wouldn't have been able to with him be with him had he not understood that she is always going to be my number one. And I think for a couple who've had a child together, there's an understanding that like, look, I love you, but as a parent, you know, the child comes first. But it but it's could be slightly more tricky to say that to someone who's just come in and is starting to fall in love with you. To say to them like, I'm already in love with someone else. And they will always matter more. To say that to a man who's new at this and, you know, he's in his 30s, he's a bit younger than me, he hasn't had kids, he's not like a divorced dad who's been through it on the other side. You know, of course he was great and I wouldn't be with him if he hadn't been able to cope with it. But I don't know what it must really be like for him to, you know, to start a relationship with someone who's already... Well, I've been through that. Have you? My ex-partner, he had a kid and, and yeah, yeah I, I came second all the yeah. time. And I, yeah. and I accepted that. Yeah, I, I would much rather be the number one, but obviously, yeah. <laughs> but I'd yeah. rather I was happier that he actually put his was a good dad. child first. Of course. Yeah, I think it's hard to respect someone who doesn't. I wouldn't have been able to first. respect him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I mean, this is wonderful to hear because obviously, being a single mother is the focus of your book and of your life in the last 10 years. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. you were living in LA when you were pregnant, I mean, how did that kind of, just the transition from being single and pregnant out there to being single and pregnant back in yeah. London? What was that like? What were the yeah. differences? Well... Didn't you say in the book that you, it was really difficult to rent a place? People yeah, so I tried to stay in LA and eventually it was just getting silly. I didn't have the right health insurance to give birth. I had emergency health insurance cover that covered me for things like the back injury. But having a baby, you have to have paid for like the family planning health insurance. So that was a bit of a ticking time bomb with, you know, the hospital stuff that was coming up. And then trying to rent a bigger apartment. I was in this one bedroom place just off the Sunset Strip, which was maybe not <laughs> exactly where you want to raise your kid. So I was looking for sort of other places to rent. And once they found out I was single and pregnant and freelance and foreign, you know, all these. I mean, it's funny, I've lived quite a sort of, I haven't exactly lived a life on the margins you know I'm white and middle class and in Britain I can I sort of pass in society quite easily and then suddenly to have a taste of what it's like you know being rejected like going around you know trying to rent a place and nobody would rent a place to it was a bit like Mary <laughs> really hard. that must have been a really hard experience it's funny I loved the bible stories as a kid and suddenly I was like Mary trying to give birth in a stable <laughs> I mean, you know, not quite so challenged as her, but um, I didn't give birth in a stable. But I was a bit like, wow, I've never had this thing before where like I don't I, I'm I'm the wrong person for everything. You're obviously working, interviewing celebrities, but in certain circles, did you find people were kind of like distancing themselves from you after you got pregnant? The landlady of the flat I was in who said I could stay and have the baby there, she she knew I was a good tenant, so I was already okay with her because she just liked the fact that, you know, I always paid the rent and I'd always been polite. But her husband came around sort of asking, you know, are you in a relationship with a father of this child? And I was a bit like, it's a bit inappropriate for my, my landlady's husband. Who asked you? Well, lovely, well, lovely. I had um, a very dear friend who, with the best will in the world, he was trying to help me and... You know, I was pregnant, but we knew I was going to be a single mum. He looked up all this research. So he came around to give me this big chat because he'd read that there was this speech delay in children born to single mothers and that we were going to have to really work on my child's use, use of language because they were going to be sort of 
backwards. I mean, uh, excuse me, where the earth did that come from? I'm so I think this survey was probably probably had multiple factors of deprivation in it. I think it was probably a survey of people who, yes, were giving birth sort of alone, but there was probably lots of, lots other, of other layers other of deprivation there, yeah. there, which I was blessed enough not to be experiencing. And also, like, I'm literally a journalist. I write, I use language for a living. It's pretty, I'm, it's pretty likely that a child of mine, unless they specifically have some issue that's, that's happened to them with speech delay, they're likely to be pretty good <laughs> with language, which my daughter is. She's very verbal and she's very good at writing. And, um, but, you know, he genuinely sort of put the willies up me that this kid was going to, and he was like, you know, it's because the parents aren't sitting and talking across the dinner table. She's not going to hear adult language with you. You know, and I was getting That's just a load of shit. I mean, if you met my daughter, it's just... Oh my God. It's just bollocks. But people were sort of pathologising my condition a bit, yeah. But there was also... I don't want to be negative. There was also loads of love and good-spiritedness. You know, I don't, I don't like to moan about it. No, absolutely not. So your experience of being pregnant and single, going through the process of antenatal classes and then obviously giving birth, I mean... What was that experience like? Because we talked a bit about the heteronormative structure yeah, around that. It's, it, it's funny. I actually think it's been easier to be the, a single mother when you've actually got the child there with you than to be a single pregnant person. I think perhaps I just hadn't got used to it yet. Perhaps it was all shocking. And pregnancy is quite a nervous state if it's your first child. You don't know what to expect. You don't know what's about to hit you, but you know that something's about to hit you. So I suppose you're quite nervous anyway. And then every situation I walked into with this big bump, you can't hide it. You are visibly pregnant. Strangers are allowed to comment on that. You walk into a bed shop and the person's going to be like, oh, you're getting ready for the new arrival. You know, it's fine. I don't mind that humans are chatty. I'm chatty. It's just I knew this awkward thing was coming. And I even I ordered it when I got back to London. I rented this place in Hackney and I had a, a new bed delivered. I didn't have a double bed. And the guy who dropped it off was this sort of Glaswegian delivery guy. He was absolutely lovely and charming, but I thought I'd paid for a full, fully made bed. I specifically tried not to order a flat pack because by this point I was really about to drop and I couldn't cope with a flat pack. And I sort of spent money I didn't have on the credit card to buy what I thought was like a posher than Ikea sort of flat back because it was from Habitat. And he turned up and just brought all these planks and bits of wood into my house. And I was like, oh, my God, what's all this? And he goes, oh, don't worry, Pat, your husband will be back home after work to oh God. sort that out for you. And he walked out the door and left me with this sort of heap of wood. And I just remember I was just sobbing, just sat by this pile of planks thinking, why did I spend all this money this on what is done? Again, and, you know. and when he said, your husband will be home, I just felt this, like, imagine, imagine someone being due back from work coming to help me. And it was actually a friend who, you know, of course, was from the sort of queer community and, and not English, you know, a Spanish sort of queer friend who came around when he found out and helped build the bed because that was um, a lot of my experience was that other people who are a bit outside the narrative are the first to come and help you. Well, this is, well that's this idea of family, extended family comes from yeah. the queer community. Yeah, and he came and built it and God love him, I just felt so much better. Off. We're lovely, we're lovely, follow me down, deep down we're lovely. You must have experienced that going through the antenatal classes and that, you know. Antenatal classes, yeah, I talk about them in the book. That it's What's funny is I am now really good friends with a lot of people from that class. At the time, I sort of 
couldn't stomach them because they all came with their husband. I don't know why it was even so straight. You'd think, you know, this was Hackney, 21st century, and you'd think there'd have been a few gay couples, but maybe they'd found a more gay-friendly, you know, special sort of antenatal group to go to. Mine was very sort of what I thought was all the smug marrieds, as Bridget Jones would have called them. I don't think they were smug What was it all. say? You, you, you get called Budget Jones, was it? Oh, yeah, my friends in LA <laughs> used to call me... But they used to say my life was a not a rom-com, but a wrong com <laughs> and that I was and my they'd go hey budge when I turned up to like meet them in the bar or something they'd be like hey it's budge yeah budget Jones <laughs> anyway. I felt like budget Jones every time I walked in and I walked in late I think I walked in late every week because I was like putting off going and putting off going so always last to walk in which made me stand out more in this antenatal class because I'd walk through the door 10 minutes late on my own. Everyone else had brought their fucking husband. And the teacher would do all these exercises where she'd be like, now this is a thing. When the labour pains start, this is how your husband can rub your lower back. And, I'm, and then she'd be like, I'll be your partner for this, Sophie. Like the <laughs> pity. Like, the pity party. Ground open up. Swallow me. I just, I'm amazed I went because I've even got some coupled up friends who were like, oh, I couldn't handle those classes. But I stuck them out to the bitter end. And I'm really glad I did because... All the people from my group have just organised because our kids are all turning 10 now. And they're probably all divorced Opt- now, aren't they? Well, some of the divorces have started. <laughs> Nothing has pleased me more than some of the divorces, right? I was literally counting down the hours till some of them. Been a couple of divorces, but they've booked a sort of holiday house in October to take all our kids to for this sort of 10 year anniversary. And um, it sounds awful. Amanda, one of them, is organising a sort of murder mystery and I sort of texted the WhatsApp and said this sounds absolutely horrendous I do not want to do a murder mystery with you but I'm fucking coming <laughs> you bastards so when you talk about the you know, the bed being delivered this is yeah. quite, quite a nice segue into the next love of yours yes teddy bears teddy bears is so this is quite surprising I'm dying to hear about this well you know it might seem the opposite of what I've described as this sort of slightly reckless lifestyle but actually I'm sure it wouldn't take a very good psychologist to suggest that someone who delayed committing to adult relationships and who still has teddy bears in her bed, like maybe there's something going on there. So you do have teddy bears in your bed? I do. And another, you know, shout out to my lovely partner now is that he... He was like, all right, all right, I can roll with this. Like, sometimes he leaves the bed and goes to my daughter's bed. Sometimes he's, like, sat on a so shelf somewhere. how many are we talking here, Sophie? How many teddy bears? Well, my main one, Whitey Bear, who was, you know, a white polar bear when I was one year old when I got him. So he's in his 40s now. I mean, I really like hanging out with Whitey. And he has a voice and he has a whole personality. He's obsessed with death. He has lots of characteristics. He, he goes off on these sort of moonscape dreams. He's got a whole sort of theology lifestyle and then my daughter's got loads of teddies and my proudest proudest thing I've never really said out loud about her is that I have I mean surely just through inculcation and brainwashing but I have absolutely turned her into a teddy obsessive most members of the Haywood family have this like my brother I think sort of managed to leave it behind but he and I can slip back into like teddy land and do the voices my parents get it they have these corduroy dogs in their house sort of teddy dogs who have a whole sort of world of belief system. So we're all hiding our dysfunctionality by sort of expressing our feelings and emotions through the bears. But I'm really into it. I love them. So I don't, I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around this because I can't relate to this at all. No, no, this is the bit where people are I'm like, just being oh, honest. Right, you've lost me. Yeah. So when you say that you like hanging out with your teddy, can you kind of 
go a bit deeper into that. I, wanna, I really want to understand. So my daughter and I will sit on one of our beds or, or on the sofa or wherever, or even on the bus without the teddies. If no one can hear us, if it's like an empty top deck of a bus, we'll start doing the voices. And there's different, you know, there's Pandy, there's Polly, there's Oakley, there's Huddy, there's Samantha Delarue. So Samantha Delarue is this very glamorous bunny rabbit who um, used to be big in Hollywood, but she's fallen on hard times. So they have all these personalities and Samantha's proudest boast, as my daughter tells everyone, is that she starred in two dog food commercials in Hollywood. And unfortunately, she was the dog. But um, she has this whole like fake Hollywood backstory that keeps unravelling. Whitey is this sort of senior bear who just... Is obsessed with death. Polly is also a polly bear, but she's convinced she's a badger. Nelephant is is sort of gender neutral and uses the they pronoun. We've we've got this whole world. So it's a ra- it's a rainbow of teddies. It's a rainbow of teddies, and we love them. And they fight with each other, and they make up with each other, and they build things, and they have teddy school. And every week we sort of make up a new class in teddy school. It's like your dream school. So in teddy school you can have a lesson in like how to sleep on a and gaze at the moon and think about cheese. You can sort of do anything in teddy school. We 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 have this total fantasy life through the teddies. It, it's really the only place I want to live so what is that so what is that if, if we were in a therapy session well here's the thing I've had various therapists in my life and I have never told any of them about the teddies which probably means that's that important I've missed, thing to cover that I've missed out on the therapy I really needed but also it was so precious to me I was like they'll break it they'll kill it they'll they'll pathol- they'll make it a thing I can't it's too precious I can't this sounds like a safe it. place to act out certain fantasies and express ideas and identities yeah but like my daughter's English you know reports from her teacher at school always go on about what an amazing imagination she has and how great that is for English and I think that's because I raised her in Teddy Land. Do you guys ever fight and fall out, you and your daughter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I have to tell her off. And I don't I don't want to always do that, like, trying to be her best friend. No, I have to be the authority figure at times. Do you use the teddies to communicate, to work out what the problems are? <laughs> well, sometimes if, like, you know, we've had words and the air is a bit, you know, mm, bit of a vibe and we haven't spoken for it, sometimes when I sort of want to come back into her emotionally like an hour or two later and I'm feeling a bit sort of sheepish like maybe I lost my temper and snapped a bit sometimes it's like it's the teddy who comes to see her and it's sort of right pandy makes the tentative approach so I'm not saying that shows I'm very emotionally skilled Lulu but that's what happens your new partner your current partner yeah he allows the teddies to stay in the bed yeah he even during the crucial moments no that's a bit of an issue (laughs) I met a guy own. once and I met him at Fabric. I was off my head this yeah. years ago. Ended up going back to his house and he had teddies in his bed. And I just thought, oh. Yeah, that weird. would be a massive turn off. You'd sort of think, oh, God, is he going to be, is he either really childlike or is he going to sort of, you know, cut my throat in the night? Like it, it could go either way, couldn't it? It could be a bit, I can imagine making a thriller film, some kind of, you know, psycho vibe thing. Where a creepy guy sends out to have loads have of teddy. You have a daughter. I think it it, it works. There's a, there's a, yeah. There's a, well, maybe our femininity sort of lets us escape that because it's a mum and a daughter. But it shouldn't because I honestly think. It well, there has to be a reason why teddies are, have always been really popular. Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, come on. I just love them. I just I... don't remember having any when I was. Don't you? No, I don't. Yeah. I mean, it's not. 
I'm not saying it's healthy, but I think it's better than not communicating at all. And we don't live in perfect worlds. We all do things in our broken ways and it's better to do something in your broken way than than to not so do you and your daughter do you have a specific teddy that you can go to sleep with yeah she has oakley and i have whitey i i she i mean she's nine so she's allowed to sort of like if she went to stay at someone's house you'd maybe expect her to take her teddy i might have to hide <laughs> i do travel without whitey but i i lie in beds without him in other places and i just long for him really yeah I don't I don't travel with him, but when me and my daughter travel, she takes like a teddy on holiday. And then and then we fight over the teddy. She's like, Mummy, why won't you just bring Whitey? Just do it. And I'm like, I can't. She's like, stop taking my teddy. So when so when you don't have Whitey in bed with you, do you feel some kind of loss? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the dog's died. It's like it's like there's an animal missing. I think that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. We might have to revisit that at a later date. <laughs> to be honest it's fascinating but I haven't got time to, to go no, you into it to <laughs> with the bears what's interesting because one of the other ones of your loves which might relate to the teddies is about being awake in the twilight hours yes and teddy bears are a part so of that has to be part of that in some way so what's that about I don't know because the teddies for me are, are also there in the daytime there's no there's no sort of remission on the teddies they are they are always present Yes, I told you my fourth love was those sort of early hours, middle of the night, early morning, sort of somewhere between the dusk and the dawn. That is my absolute favourite time. And I think I like it because everyone else has gone to sleep. And I was going to say, is this after yeah. being a parent? It's both. It's when I used to go out clubbing and, you know, you come home at four in the morning or you sort of see the night through and it's the next day or it's sort of essay crisis as a student you know you're staying up till five in the morning to finish your project which I still do as a journalist I never really got over that late night rush thing and then as a mum breastfeeding you know you sort of hate staying up all night but there was a little part of it where I loved having this kind of 4am you know the streets have gone dead just me and her so it's not insomnia. It's not insomnia. No, related. I'm really lucky. I've never had actual insomnia. I sort of give myself insomnia and in that I'll be on screens for hours or like have my phone in, you know, the bed, which you're not supposed to have. I do all that stuff. I sort of should be an insomnia, but I'm very lucky if I actually do want to go to sleep. I, I can always sleep. I'm very lucky with that. But I, I have sort of voluntary insomnia where I just set the everyone else has got, wake up at 4am no everyone else has gone to bed I just can't go to bed I just don't go to bed so do you not get enough sleep or do you I probably don't get enough sleep no because I would get anxious if I was awake at that time of night I wouldn't enjoy it I'd feel anxious I, I feel like I've like I've stolen something I feel like no one else gets to have this everyone else is missing it and I've sort of robbed this extra clutch of time from from the world the way my energy and attention works is that I'm quite easy to distract and I can have quite a scattered mind and even just knowing that there's lots of busy people around me especially living in London which is a city with lots of stuff it's not like a field in Suffolk where it's just you I think the way I make the city work for me is that it's maybe sometimes too much for me in the day I get too sucked into all the other people's busyness and then after dark, I sort of get that. It's, it's like that time is my field in Suffolk. So what do you do in that time? What happens? I'm probably just on the internet. I'm probably just scrolling through Rightmove, which is another of Oh, my gosh, loves. that was one of your but, other ones. Um, yeah. 
you know, I probably like to think I'm writing great poetic epics. I mean, some of my book was written then. Some of my good writing does come then. I had this vision of you just like like sitting there thinking, looking out the window. Sometimes, the yeah. Sometimes my partner is a great sort of set up, have a drink, have a cigarette, put the world to rights all night. So we are probably quite bad for each other in that we can just sit there for hours, like having a drink and just ranting. And um, we have to sort of make ourselves go to bed. But yeah, he's been brilliant company in lockdown because we can both just sit well we sort of joke that we're running a pub in our kitchen i mean long term we'll probably kill each other or ourselves just through ill health of sitting there drinking all night yeah but even he eventually is like right i'm going to bed and i'm like so now you have to share your twilight time with someone else that's so that's kind of difficult isn't it yeah he's but he's away everyone's away at the moment so i've been having this sort of so i would have thought the the beauty of it is to be by yourself away from everybody well it's new it's new sharing my twilight that is new i have quite enjoyed having a bit of just me time again yeah no (laughs) not for me (laughs) i have a horrible but you're a dj so you work in clubs your schedule must be quite late oh it's hideous i don't get enough sleep yeah but you're tired i get quite tired I was recently on holiday for a couple of weeks and I just kept waking up at like half five. Yeah. Five. And that's really annoying. And was that it for the day? That was it for the day. You were up. And did you get up or just sort of lie there? Oh, I got up. Yeah. I just get up, go for a run or something. I think the older you get, the harder it is to have a lie-in. It's really annoying. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if I would prefer, maybe I should follow follow what you do and kind of maybe be up more in the night and then go to bed later and then lie in. But I think there's a certain point where you just wake up anyway. Oh God, it's age, isn't it? It is age. You can't, I still haven't learned that like if I'm staying up till two on a weekday, like when I know that by about 7am, you know, life's kicking in and I've got to get my daughter up for school and stuff. Well, like, see, you can't have lines, can you? You've got a kid. No, I can't. But I'm still going to bed at two. And then I'm awake from sort of 6.45. It's it's silly. This is quite good. You were a self-professed party girl. You used to love parties. Mm. You didn't pick partying as one of your loves, but we'll talk about that in a minute. How did that work when you kind of can't do that anymore? So you have a different type of twilight yeah. hours. Well, I think I handled the pandemic well I didn't handle it well but I think I had I was slightly ahead of some people because when you've had a kid on your own even though I did still try to keep going out and stuff six out of seven nights of the week I didn't have a babysitter I couldn't go out I was used to even if I got a text from a friend saying oh we're in the pub near your house I was like great it's nine o'clock my kid's in bed what can I do so I was very used to feeling stuck in the house very, very used to it. So the pandemic didn't shock me in the way that it shocked some people, especially extroverts, of which I would probably have sort of put myself in that group, despite the secret teddy bear life, which is maybe a bit introvert. <laughs> a bit private. Um, yeah, I think, private I, think, anymore. I think I was a bit better equipped for lockdown than some people. I was very used to not being able to go to the pub when I wanted to. Yeah, but even before that, so when you, you, you became a mum suddenly... yeah. So that must have been a bit of a loss as well, was it? That yeah, you lost I, that side of your yeah, life. Yeah, I think I think there was grief, and I think I carried on trying to have it maybe a bit past the point. I mean, it's because the book, the Hungover Games, isn't it's, that it's what that's about? It's called the Hungover Games, yeah, because I was still trying to have my Saturday nights and sort of paying for babysitters or pulling in a favour. Or my mum would come down from Yorkshire and look after my kid for a few days, and I'd get a break. I mean, I'd be there, but she did a lot. She was very hands on. And I'd sort of try and go out, you know, sort of stumbling home drunk. It's not it's not a great look when you've got a baby. 
My friends and I had this idea ages ago about starting a company called the Hangover Nannies. Yes, so it's not just the night before, because I'd always think, why does the babysitter have to leave at like half eleven? But no, look, look take it's this the whole day. It's the Sunday morning that you need yeah. them for, and the fry up and everything. So how did you cope with that? The, the so baby I developed hangover. all these games that you could play to sort of entertain her, but that I could do whilst lying very, very still. So do you remember like the operation game when we were kids, you used to have to sort of really gently uh-huh. dangle the needle on the sort of plastic human body. It was like being a doctor doing an operation and a buzzer would go off if you sort of, if your hand shook. I sort of tried to invent this version with me and her where I'd lie there and she'd have one of those little kiddie doctor's kits. You get loads of those toys. for Kids love doctors. And I'd be like, you know, mummy's poorly, um be a doctor so she'd sort of I'd lie there on the floor and she'd do like the stethoscope on me and she'd sort of try and take my heartbeat and I'd maybe say look you can dab my face with a flannel I've got a temperature oh that's brilliant and um I'd get her to sort of go around me doing like soothing doctor things and then it, we found that on YouTube there were these videos of I think they call it lymphatic drainage massage where you sort of rub someone's face very gently in these kind of circular movements and all little kids love watching a YouTube video so I'd put those on and be like can you do that and she'd sort of do this like lymphatic drainage you know with the sort of toddler's big sausage fingers but it was better than going to the park yeah that's good so that's kind of what the book title I don't know if I actually spell it out in the book but we had a lot of these hungover games that I would I would be like mummy has to lie very still to play this game. So the next book, following on from this, is about then it get, it graduates to her making you bacon sandwich and bringing you a cup of tea in bed. Do you know she made me a cup of tea yesterday? It was absolutely brilliant. I hadn't even she can now do one, but I hadn't asked for it. I just said out loud. I wasn't even fishing. I just said out loud, I would love a cup of tea. And she went, oh, I'll make you one. And she sort of went, oh, grey. And I was like, oh my god, it's amazing. <laughs> That's so handy. Yeah. It's almost worth having a kid just for that. And she has, she's nine and she has now learned to cook pasta. She can't really carry the big heavy pan of water. She needs a bit of help, but she can cook pasta. It's amazing. Well, so you did talk about right move. I mean, I was quite surprised you did put that in as one of your loves. No, I right just... move is... is I, I, I don't... You have to explain this to me. So I'm obsessed with houses, with buying houses. And, well, well the fantasy of buying houses more than the reality because it's not very often in your life that you can actually buy a house. But in my head, you know, every week we've, like, moved to a new place. And when I look around someone's house on right move, look at all the photos, I don't just think oh god they live in Hampstead two million quid that'd be nice to live in Hampstead I literally start planning so you know when I've got the money to live in Hampstead I'm going to have that as my bedroom I'm going to move the kitchen I'm going to do this thing there I'm going to go into the garden a bit there I'm going to change that front door this is all part of escapism yeah but like I literally write notes in it like I've literally got I cannot begin to say how many notes on my phone where I've planned my life in someone else's house totally I I do (laughs) and you want to put your teddies in there right yeah teddies are in there yeah it's it's totally delusional, but um, I spend more time than I can tell you doing this. So where are the good where are the good spots? At least share that with us. Oh well, if you're in East London and you're sort of priced out of you know, maybe you should be an estate agent. I, no, that's my other career. Uh, if you're priced out of Hackney, East London, definitely. Uh, everyone's moving to sort of Forest Gate, Leytonstone, Wanstead Flats around Tottenham? there. Tottenham also, yeah. I mean, I feel like a terrible gentrifier now, but yeah, Tottenham. Definitely Tottenham. Seven Sisters Tubes, brilliant as well. You can nip into town very quickly. Um, I think Gold is Green, which obviously nobody... Well, there's a 
very big Jewish population in Golders Green who've been there for some time. Not that many people move to Golders Green from other communities. But there's lots and lots of houses there that are for sale or on the market, not very done up at all, all a bit ramshackle in need of love. They don't cost a million pounds. And in London, most houses do cost over a million. They cost under a million pounds and they're walking distance to Hampstead Heath. And I can't believe that no one goes there. It's, I love Golders Green. So what about, do you fantasise going in different countries or is it just in London? Oh, fantasise about the whole world. And I go on, and I, so like if someone says, oh, my friend moved to Istanbul, she's got this amazing flat for like, you know, what sounds like a cheap price to a Londoner. I won't just try and work out whereabouts in Istanbul this flat is. I'll go on Google Street View and like go for a walk around the streets, around this per- this total stranger's flat that I found out about. I'll like imagine I'm there and be like working out where I'd go if I lived there and how far is it to the airport. I, I will spend, I'll go for walks around the world on Google Street View. And I interviewed the author, Philip Holman, and thank God he does it as well. I mean, he gets best-selling novels out of it because some of his more recent characters have gone on sort of adventures around the world. So he was using it for research. I don't know what my excuse is. You've got a very active imagination. I have. Did you ever, have you read Mrs. P's Journey? No. About the woman who wrote The A to Z? No. You need to read that. Yeah, it's, she went on foot. Her family were cartographers. Is that right? Yes, yeah, map makers. Yeah, map makers. And that, and it's literally her biography <gasps> about how she wrote the A to Z. It's really good. No. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's my dream. I yeah. spend a lot of time I'll get you maps. a copy. <laughs> Amazing. Right, that's all my weird loves. I've said too much. It's really worth those people listening now to check out Sophie's book. I think. <laughs> if you haven't lost all faith in It's really interesting. And I, I, you know, I'm not a mother, but I relate to it in a lot of ways I think it's really interesting I think it's really important for people feeling outside of the narrative to kind of find a way to be part of the narrative yeah I think that we can all like we if you don't feel like you're part of the the dominant sort of heteronormative model I think lots of people aren't and I think we can identify with each other in lots of different ways and it's not about the non-mothers non-parents and and the rest of us so I think it's really great and I actually think you know we're talking about more positive narratives about single mothers I would say in a way it's a way of breaking that as well about providing a positive narrative about single mother do you think absolutely I didn't know it could be so joyful to be it just just the word single parent single mom they just people usually balk at that go yeah that's, you that's sort of see grey and shopping bags pulling through somebody's fingers and sort of rain don't you misery and solitude when you hear single mother um hurrah you found your love story I... and I think that is you know I think this is a really positive way to end this interview right Teddy move bears. twilight zone <laughs> teddy bears it's all there <laughs> Thank you so much, Sophie. It's been Thank- wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Lulu. It's been amazing. Well, lovely. You've been listening to Where Love Lives with me, Lulu LeVay. My guest has been the fabulous Sophie Haywood, whose book, The Hangover Games, is out now on paperback. This podcast was recorded at the mega slick studios at Soho Radio and was edited and produced by me. Do follow me at Dr. Lulu LeVay. I'd love to hear what you think about the podcast and share with me the things that you also love outside of romantic relationships. Or just send me a message to say hello. I'd love to hear from you. Remember, do subscribe, like, comment and all of that jazz. Share with your friends. And remember, I love you. We're lovely. We're lovely. Follow me down.